Hey everybody, this is Current History, the podcast that is really playing it fast and loose with the definition of current. Also, yes, I'm starting a new topic because I have varied interests and starting new things is more fun than finishing old things. But I've had a lot of free time lately, so I've been doing a lot of reading about Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is a super interesting country that's in the middle of a bunch of pieces that I really want to talk about, like the Russian Revolution, the Holodomor Famine, the Second World War, Chernobyl, the recent election of a comedian as president, and finally, the Ukraine scandal that's led to the impeachment of Donald Trump. What I want to do with this episode is talk about Ukraine, the First World War, and the Russian Revolution, and the swirling chaos that turned the sleepy backwater of Russia into an important spot on the world stage. For this episode, we will cover from the First World War in 1914 through to 1921, when the Russian Revolution and Civil War ends in Bolshevik control of Russia and a Soviet puppet government in Ukraine. Unfortunately for Ukraine, they've only been a truly independent state since the 90s, so today's story is going to look a lot more like a history of Eastern Russia. Especially in this episode, I'm going to focus a lot on the Russian Revolution, partially because it's super interesting, but also because it's a primary driver of events in Ukraine for this period. Also, I'm going to bitch about these communist revolutionaries a lot, particularly Lenin and Stalin. I honestly think that these guys were garbage leaders, because they are the poster child for the argument that the ends justify the means. They thought they were revolutionaries, making a better world, which justified building a police state to hunt down their enemies, and their enemies expanded to include anyone and everyone. In the process of trying to form a state that cares about working people and freedom, they instead created one of the most oppressive dictatorships the world has ever seen. On the other hand, in a period of massive instability that is changing governments faster than a Kardashian changes outfits, the Bolsheviks succeeded in clinging to power at all costs with a combination of brutality and pragmatism, despite being an extremist party that was hated by nearly every organized group in Russia, ranging from the conservatives to their fellow socialists and even other communist revolutionaries making them an excellent lesson in Machiavellian power consolidation. So let's get started. But first, a message from the closest thing I have to a sponsor. Ad break. Ukraine means borderland, and for hundreds of years, they have existed as the edge of someone else's empire. Before the First World War, Ukrainians were known as Ruthenians, and to the Russians, they were Novorussia, or New Russia. This is the same split you see today between calling the country Ukraine or the Ukraine, one of which will piss off a Ukrainian. Calling the country the Ukraine follows the Russian line of thinking, which is that Ukraine is just a sub-region of Russia. The Ukraine is a region, whereas Ukraine is a sovereign state. But at the time of our story, Ukraine is the eastern borderland of the Russian Empire. At the same time that Britain was colonizing India and France was colonizing North Africa, the Russian Empire was looking for its own territory to take over and exploit for resources. Luckily for Russia, they have more options than other European countries. If Germany wants to take over new territories, they have to either fight major European powers or go halfway around the world and carve out a piece of Africa that no other Europeans have bothered to claim yet. 
but Russia has tons of areas to expand. They can go east and take over Siberia, south to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, or they can go west into Ruthenia, an area famous for its fertile soil and grain production. Ruthenia is the old-timey name of what we now know of as Ukraine. Through conflicts with Lithuania and Poland, who were in control of this area, Muscovy, the precursor to Russia, brings this valuable territory into the empire. Ukraine was called Novorussia, or Little Russia, and it was the edge of the empire populated with peasant farmers who were used to being ruled from the cities by some other ethnic group, first the Poles and then the Russians. They speak Ukrainian, which Russian people view as more of a country bumpkin accent than an actual language. Claiming they aren't a distinct people with a distinct language was an important part of Russia's claim to Ukraine. Russia defends their claim to Ukraine by saying that they are the government of all Slavic people, but they don't get all of these Ukrainians. Some are part of Poland, some are part of Austria-Hungary, and some are part of Romania. This all becomes important when in 1914, a bunch of European kings with itchy trigger fingers decide to take a page out of Frank Reynolds' book and just start blasting. Soon, Russia is at war with Austria-Hungary, which has two massive negative effects on Ukraine. Suddenly, Ukrainians are being called up to fight on both sides of this conflict, and because they are a borderland, Ukraine also has the terrible privilege of being the battlefield of the Eastern Front in the First World War. But first, everyone is going to bitch about this Russian Tsar guy, so what made him so bad? Well, let me introduce you to Nicholas II, Tsar of the Russian Empire. This guy Nick is an interesting character because he has three major personality traits that work against each other. First off, this guy is indecisive as shit and tends to land on the worst possible decision after waffling for way too long. Second, Nick is a family man and he cares deeply for his German wife and their children. This might seem obvious, but in a royal family, marriages back in the day were about as soulless and dead-eyed as Melania Trump every time she is forced to stand next to her Willy Wonka goblin of a husband. To cap off this trifecta of personality traits, Nick has an autocratic streak a mile wide. The guy completely believes that he is ordained by God to rule Russia, just as his family line has ruled Russia for decades, which means the only person with power is the Tsar, and he controls everything. Nick was in the Winter Palace when the previous Tsar and his grandfather, Alexander II, were brought in after being struck by an assassin's bomb. Nick's grandfather bled out in front of him despite giving concessions to the people, and Nick learned that being nice to your subjects is the pansy move. Despite having a parliament forced on him in 1905 in the form of the Duma, Nick succeeded in keeping them away from ever having real power or influence, while still blaming them for every problem his regime faced, and then disbanding them whenever they got particularly annoying. But there's one massive downside to controlling the entire government. If the government is fucking up, there is no one else to blame but you. Separately from his garbage personality traits, the institution of the Tsar had a lot of negative associations. One of the big ones was serfdom, the Russian system of managing their gigantic peasant population that is perfectly described as slavery with extra steps. If you were a serf, 
You were a farmer, tied to the land that you live on, and the lord in charge of it. The serfs had about as many rights as my Pokemon card collection in middle school, except their lords didn't care for them half as much as I cared for my prized Charizard. Serfs could be bought, sold, and leased between the upper classes, and had no control over where they could live or who they would work for. Slowly, in the 1800s, the shackles of serfdom were reduced, but in much the same way as the South resisted Reconstruction after the Civil War, a change in laws at the top took a very long time to turn into a change in conditions on the ground. Even with serfdom abolished, the former landlords owned all the good land, and the serfs still needed wage work or factory work to get by, but at least they finally had some minor freedoms. One more element of the Tsarist system and Russia as a whole is anti-Semitism, aka prejudice against Jewish people. The Jewish population of Russia had pretty much been shit on from as far back as you care to go in history right up until today. When Russia took over huge swaths of Eastern Europe, like modern-day Poland and Ukraine in the 1700s, they acquired a huge Jewish population that most of their rulers really did not like, so they took a ton of steps to make life harder for them. For hundreds of years, Jews in Russia were restricted by the Pale of Settlement, which restricted where Jews could live and what kind of work they could do. They were heavily restricted from living in Old Russia, and were instead forced to live in this borderland area between Russia proper and Europe. Because of this pale, Jews couldn't own or work on agricultural land, so they had to find a way to make money in business or the trades. Because the state didn't give a shit about them, Russian Jews set up systems to handle their own business, like community-funded schools and welfare systems for the poor. It looked like maybe the Pale of Settlement might finally go away under the reign of Alexander II with his social reforms, but that same assassination that hardened Nicholas II's resolve to be an autocratic dickhole also smashed any hope of ending Jewish oppression in Russia, because it was rumored that the man who pulled the trigger was Jewish. Now, unlike the rumor that Becky is a slut and totally made out with Jennifer's boyfriend at the homecoming dance, this rumor resulted in deaths. In the 1880s, public sentiment swung hard against Jewish people, and they were cracked down on by the law and by the people across Russia as anti-Semitic attacks and murders, called pogroms, broke out. The Pale of Settlement would hold all the way till the First World War in 1914, and along with it, anti-Semitic hostility became ride or die with both the Russian people and the Russian leadership. I will bring up the plight of the Jewish population throughout this period of chaotic history from time to time, but it's important to remember that they are part of the population throughout this chaos, but with the added problems of public hatred and political responses ranging from apathy to hostility. For the period from the 1880s to the Russian Revolution in 1917, the Jewish experience can be summed up as a series of unfortunate events. Another hated portion of the Tsar's rule was his secret police force called the Okhrana. For a picture of how this organization works, just think about what the United States would be like if the CIA operated in our borders like they operate in the rest of the world. Imagine a police force that has spies and informants everywhere hunting for any sign of dissent. If they decide that you are bad news, there's no trial, jury, or judge. As far as your family knows, one day you just disappear, scooped up off the street by men in black. 
They take you to their equivalent of Guantanamo Bay, and the torture begins, and it only ends when you admit to whatever the hell you have to say to make it stop. The secret police has unchecked authority to detain, terrorize, and execute anyone that they decide is a dissident. Later, we'll talk a lot about the Bolshevik Party, which was exactly the kind of radicals that the Okhrana wanted to influence and disrupt. Throughout the early stages of the revolution, the Okhrana has the Bolsheviks infiltrated ten ways to Sunday. For a time, the goals of the Okhrana are aligned with Lenin, because they both want to shatter the unity of the Social Democrats, the far left-leaning bloc in Russian politics. At one point, before the revolution, four out of five Bolsheviks on their leading committee in the capital of St. Petersburg are actually undercover Okhrana agents. These secret police were widely hated and feared by the common Russian people. So now you have a basis in some of the problems Russian people had with their government, even before the crushing chaos of the First World War, which will help us understand why people have so many complaints and why the proposal of social revolution seemed so great to the working people of Russia. These problems will also give an interesting window into why what the Bolsheviks end up creating is so hated by the peasants. Like everything the Bolsheviks do, they start with extreme socialist theory, then when that doesn't work, they compromise and cut corners until they end up accidentally reinventing the same dumbass system they were trying to replace. Through that process, they will toss this whole system into disarray and cause mass starvation, then fix that problem by reinventing serfdom. But more on that and me calling the Bolsheviks morons later. For now, we gotta broach one of my favorite topics, the First World War. Now, if you think about World War I, the first thing that should come to mind is men in cloth caps and trenches, blowing whistles and then going over the top, straight into the jaws of waiting machine guns. This popular image is from the Western Front, between Germany and France, which was a relatively static meat grinder of impossibly thick defenses and pointless frontal attacks that kill thousands for less than a thousand yards of territory. But on the far side of Germany, they are fighting the colossal Russian army, and the war is far less static and trenchy. Unfortunately, this doesn't make the fighting less pointless, it just makes it far more deadly, because everyone is fighting in open ground. For Ukraine, this time period sucks, but while there aren't hardened trench lines, there is at least a front line where the fighting is happening, and even if it moves, you mostly just have to avoid those areas. The major problem for the Ukrainian people comes when either the Russians or the Germans are running their territory. During the war, Ukrainians face the problems of civilians in a battleground, and are shot, deported, drafted, and interned by the thousands. Thousands of people stream from the front lines back into Russia, carrying everything they had on their backs, further weakening the overcapacity road and rail transport system Russia needed to continue the war. The Tsar passed a law giving military commanders complete control over whatever area they happen to be in, a policy which proved disastrous. Military commanders became like little kings, stealing food, abusing civilians, and massacring the local Jewish population by their own country's military. When either side took over an area, they viewed the civilians that were still there with suspicion and treated them like enemy spies. The war also sets off an economic disaster in Russia as the food supply dwindles. 
Russia has always had some of the most bountiful agricultural regions, including the Don area of northeastern Ukraine, which produced grain that was exported to Germany and Britain. With the outbreak of the war, food was still being grown, but the big problem was moving it around. Russia had much fewer railroads than the other great powers, and normally moved all of this exported grain by riverboat down the Don River, but with Turkey's entrance to the war, this shipping lane is cut off. Russia's weak train lines are overwhelmed with the work of transporting the men, weapons, and equipment necessary to fight the war, and so was not up to the task of shipping food throughout Russia. Because of this, in agricultural regions, food was confiscated from the peasants, but usually ended up rotting at a train station waiting to be picked up. Part of the problem was that the Russian government hated the existing food transportation network, which was frequently described as being just a bunch of Jewish middlemen. The failure of the food supply system was as much a result of bad policy and open racism as it was a product of a weak transportation network. This system struggles along through 1914 and 1915, but partway through that year, Russia suffers massive defeats and is pushed back from the areas of Poland and Ukraine that they control. This pushes the Tsar to take direct control of the military, because of course the real problem is that the Tsar doesn't have enough direct control of everything. This military setback puts Russia on the path of a dire food situation and a dire military situation and puts the Tsar in the position to lose the support of the people if the military continues to fail. In 1917, Russia is struggling under the weight of long years of war losses to the Germans and Austro-Hungarians. Unrest is clearly growing in the streets of St. Petersburg, with regular protests for more bread by the wives of the city. The Tsar decides to travel to the front to more directly control the military, and so he leaves his German wife in charge. Unfortunately, Alexandra Fedronova is under the spell of Rasputin, a country bumpkin priest who had wormed his way into the royal family by taking care of the Tsar's son. With the city being ruled by a German woman who is seen as being controlled by Rasputin, the people's trust in the legitimacy of the government was at an all-time low. What started as a bread riot in the capital escalated when soldiers are ordered to open fire on protesters. But instead of massacring the workers and wives in the streets, some military units in the capital kill their commanding officers and join the incipient rebellion. The Tsar tries to abdicate and put his son on the throne, but it falls apart and instead a provisional government is formed around the Duma, that elected parliament that had essentially no power under the Tsar. Suddenly, Russia is not an absolutist monarchy, it's a democratic republic. Since the politics of Russia suddenly matter, let's talk about what the political situation in the provisional government was. Well, typically we divide up the politics of a country into left-wing and right-wing. Generally, the left-wing is either for moderate changes or massive revolutionary change, while the right-wing is for either things staying the same or things going back to how they were. From left to right, that spectrum breaks down to revolutionaries, reformers, conservatives, and reactionaries. That's how a normal state is set up. But the Tsar had a monopoly on both conservatives and reactionaries, and with his power failing, it gets pretty hard to argue either that things should stay the same or that backwards has any benefits. So the right end of the spectrum is pretty much chopped off. 
All that is left is different flavors of reformers and revolutionaries. Because of this chop, rather than a disagreement between reformers and conservatives, the three sides are the liberals, the socialists, and the communists. When the SARS government explodes, there are a couple of organizations waiting in the wings, and without the SAR crushing any political organization, suddenly it's time for an episode of Political Party Bachelor. The Cadet Party are liberals, which in this case means they're the party of the wealthy and the well-educated, and they were very influential in the provisional government created after the SAR. But the cadets chose to continue the war and couldn't fix the food crisis in the cities, so their support weakened. Our next up-and-coming bachelor is the Menshevik Party, which is the moderate socialists. These are the Bernie Sanders types that want to change things through existing government. They're also strong in the provisional government and are supportive of democracy because they have a lot of support in elections. The main criticism of the Mensheviks is that they want socialism, but they are trying to achieve it through democracy and in cooperation with the rich liberals who are resistant to socialist policy. Our last bachelor is the Bolshevik party, and these guys have some pretty extreme ideas. Their leader, Vladimir Lenin, is a strident Marxist, but his experience in life have left him completely disillusioned with the actual working class people his ideology was supposed to rely on. He had seen that worker organization often failed as workers stopped striking for slightly better benefits rather than demanding control of the factory. The Bolsheviks were revolutionaries and believed that any sacrifice was acceptable if it furthered their own power. They were ideological extremists, but were willing to backtrack or abandon their ideology if it was necessary to consolidate power. If you have such a supposedly great goal, any means are justified to get to the ends you want. The transitional government keeps its commitment to stay in the war, but struggles to provide food, giving rise to the rallying cry for the Bolsheviks, bread and peace. The Bolsheviks are part of a competing government in the capital, the Petrograd Soviet. These groups are the main political forces that will decide how Russia turned out after this revolution, and they have very different visions. Under Lenin, the Bolsheviks don't believe in the democratic process because nobody votes for them, so fuck what the people think. This contributes to Lenin's belief that the proletariat, the workers who are supposed to enact a socialist revolution, are too stupid and weak to ever actually change things. Lenin looks around and realizes that both the Provisional Government and the Petrograd Soviet have a very weak grip on the capital. In order to placate the soldiers who had betrayed their officers and started the revolution, the Provisional Government had allowed the soldiers to elect their own generals, which meant in reality that no one was in control of the troops in the city. In order to help the government restore order, the Bolsheviks oh-so-nicely volunteered to be the ones to organize a military force. Theoretically, this Red Army is under the control of the government, but in reality, it is under the control of the Bolsheviks and led by Leon Trotsky. Then, it's just a matter of waiting for the right moment to strike. When a military officer pulls off a coup and takes control of the capital, People rally behind the extreme and organized Bolsheviks because of their promise to bring back the democratic government, giving them the power they need to take control of the city. Once their troops control the capital, the Bolsheviks move to arrest many members of the provisional government and seize power, 
declaring their new government the United Soviet Socialist Republic. As part of the USSR's marketing, they were against imperialism, so they decided they would bail out of the First World War and swear off the imperial holdings of the Russian Empire. In reality, the Bolsheviks only really had power in the capital, but they were organizing, raising troops, and trying to bring Russia back under control of their government. But for a time, this meant that the outer regions were left to their own devices. So what does all this have to do with Ukraine? Well, with Russia thrown into chaos, the regional government of Ukraine decided to seize the reins. They formed the Central Rada, the first independent Ukrainian government. What follows is actually kind of a Marxist dream. The Bolsheviks were really into violent and forceful Marxism, forcing people to conform to a new system and seeing anyone who opposed their specific vision as enemies who needed to be destroyed and denigrated. But what happened in Ukraine is a lot more like what Karl Marx was actually thinking. With the state collapsed, workers seized the means of production and ran things themselves at the local level. Factory committees formed from the workers to independently manage themselves, and villages which were used to managing themselves formalized this system, creating Soviets, which is just a group of locals making decisions. It seems like things are really looking up, as suddenly the hated and oppressive Tsar is gone. The socialist government of Ukraine, called the Central Rada, begins establishing control of their, over their country and sending delegations to get recognized by other important countries. They also begin the difficult process of setting up a running state by establishing Ukrainian as the national language and hiring bureaucrats to make sure the trains run on time and the garbage is picked up. While all of this is going on in Ukraine, there is some nonsense going on back in Russia. See, the Bolsheviks are really attached to their extreme way of doing things, which has very little actual basis in the name they have chosen, the Soviet. Soviet just means elected council, and the point of governing by Soviet is that you govern from the ground up, with people getting to provide input at every level on the policies that affect their lives. If you're thinking that that just sounds like democracy, then you would be right. Government by Soviet is supposed to be a democracy, where everyone is represented. Unfortunately, the USSR follows the rule of their name just about as well as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is to say they took the name and the marketing material and blew everything else out their ass. The Bolsheviks do not play well with others, and almost immediately begin to clash with the other radical socialist groups. Over the next year, one after the other, all of the other slightly less radical branches of socialism get denounced as traitors to the cause, while their leaders are arrested and their members are forced into hiding. The liberals are denounced as being bourgeoisie, an economic class that is seen as a worthless parasite that contributes nothing in Marxist ideology. Next, the Mensheviks are denounced as stooges of the liberals. The Ukrainian Socialist Party is denounced as a bourgeoisie government and is not accepted as legitimate by the Soviets, who see Ukraine as just a province of Russia. Instead of turning like-minded people with minor disagreements into a strong base of allies, they go scorched earth against anyone not perfectly in line with their beliefs. This leads to the ridiculous situation the Bolsheviks will find themselves in, where when they take over a new area, they feel they have to massacre a laundry list of groups like the rich, the educated, local leaders, Cossacks, fascists, 
Ukrainian nationalists, moderate socialists, extreme Ukrainian socialists. They pretty much kill anyone with an opinion on anything, and the only people who benefited were the very poor peasants, who were used as tools to kill and rob the rich. To make matters worse for them, the Bolshevik coup does not go off without a hitch, because just like Theresa May with Brexit, they find themselves triumphantly taking over a country that is a complete flaming shitshow. Seriously, they could not possibly have picked a worse country for communism to take over. Over 3 million people have died from World War I in Russia. Their most productive territory on the edge of Europe has been ravaged by four long years of war, and they're immediately tossed into a civil war against the conservatives of Russian society, especially the military and the Cossacks, which are a class of people that are a funny combination of cowboy and Mongolian horse archer. The Cossacks were strong supporters of the Tsar, who guaranteed their autonomy and high place in society in exchange for military support. Seeing these benefits disappearing in the new Soviet system, they joined the White Army against the Bolsheviks. To make matters worse again, the peace negotiations at the end of the war do not go well for the Soviet Union. When they show up to negotiate with the Germans, the Soviets start off negotiations by demanding that they don't cede any territory or pay any money in war reparations. This Trump-level deal-making would be like if I was negotiating to buy a car and I started that negotiation by saying that they should just give me the car for free. After what I can only imagine is a hearty laugh from the German negotiators, they started describing what their plans were for their eastern border. Now, for the German perspective on this, first I gotta remind you that we aren't talking about the Nazis here. This is the First World War, and Germany is ruled by a Kaiser, who is essentially a king. But Germany is still super not a fan of their position in Europe, which is right smack in the middle of a lot of big and unfriendly countries, like France and Russia. Germany would prefer both of these countries were either weakened or at least farther away. For the negotiations with Russia, the Germans announced that they would be breaking a couple of smaller countries out of the former Russian Empire. Germany wants an independent Finland, Livonia, Estonia, Romania, Gaelica, and Armenia. Later they put an independent Ukraine on the menu because they're in contact with the fledgling Ukrainian government and believe they can bring them in into the German orbit. The Germans realize after significant negotiations that the Bolsheviks are just playing for time and hoping Germany will have a socialist revolution of its own. So in response, the German army starts a new offensive, pushing for the capital at Petrograd. With their backs against the wall and their fledgling revolution a threat, the USSR eventually signs the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. This treaty is remarkably similar to the Treaty of Versailles that later ends the entire war in that it puts a massive punishment on the losing country, in this case the Russians. They're forced to grant independence to many Eastern European countries, including Ukraine, as well as pay a ton of money and cede a bunch of territory directly to Germany. This treaty sucks gigantic dong for the Russians. In one swish of a pen, they lose roughly one-third of their population, one-third of their rail network, one-third of their agricultural land, over half of their industrial area, and almost 90% of their coal mines. I did some back-of-the-napkin math to compare this to the current United States. 
Imagine if we lost a war with Canada, and in the peace deal, we had to give up Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. That's the entire East Coast. That would roughly match the percentage of population that the Soviet Union loses in Brest-Litovsk. But while Russia is getting hit with this horrible deal, at the same Brest-Litovsk conference, a delegation from the Central Rada is in, from Ukraine is also negotiating their way out of the war. Ukraine is looking to partner with Germany to guarantee their new independence from Russia, and they have something the Germans desperately need, stores of food. Germany decides they are playing settlers of Catan and trades a peace deal with Ukraine for a million bushels of wheat. I guess they were planning on buying a shitload of development cards since all they had were stupid minerals. So there it is, folks. Since the Germans win the First World War, Ukraine stays happy, peaceful, and prosperous forever and ever. Russia is broken as a world power, and the Soviet Union never matters on the world stage again. 1918 is the end of any conflict ever in the whole wide world, and the world experiences a dangerous shortage of wood from all the campfires lit to sing Kumbaya around. Yeah, so that doesn't happen. An independent Ukraine lasts roughly five seconds. Protests against Brest-Litovsk and Russia harden the Soviet leadership to crushing protests and any other political parties or flavors of socialism that are even slightly different than the Bolshevik orthodoxy. After German soldiers help the Ukrainians push out the Bolsheviks, the Germans back a coup by Hetman Pavlo Skorpadsky, a man connected to the old Cossack leadership of Ukraine. He offers Ukraine as essentially a vassal state to Germany in exchange for weapons, tying the fortune of his fledgling state to Germany only a short time before they completely get their asses kicked. Talk about a bad time to make an alliance. Meanwhile, in the north of Ukraine, the White Army, the Civil War opponents of the Soviet Red Army, are setting up shop for a protracted conflict over the future of Russia. If the people of Ukraine thought that the war with its mostly fixed front line and uniformed soldiers was bad, things are about to get much worse. The Russian Civil War will rage for years to come, and a significant portion of this conflict will take place in the difficult-to-control frontier of Russia, Ukraine. With the Central Rada government collapsed, Ukraine descends into a state of anarchy. There's a group of idiots these days who call themselves anarchists, and they believe that the state is nothing but a cancer on a naturally good humanity, and if we just stopped having governments, then everyone would just govern themselves and live in happiness. Well, I'm here to tell you that anarchist peace is a crock of shit. You remember the socialist utopia that Ukraine had for a bit, where workers controlled their factories and rural villages governed themselves? Yeah. That all goes completely to shit. Everyone with guns and the men to carry them declares themselves in charge of however much territory they control. The region explodes into armed groups too numerous to name, but there are a few important ones that we'll talk about. Of course, there are the two main armies of the Russian Civil War, the Soviet Red Army and the Tsarist White Army. There are a few attempts to form a Ukrainian state, like a group led by Simon Petluria that tried to ally with the White Army, but eventually switches to an alliance with Poland. 
There are also Allied armies dicking around in the east, including a British force that Winston Churchill hopes will eventually work with the White Army to overthrow the Soviets. In addition to these organized ideological groups, there are also countless small bands of bandits who are just looking to get food and shelter at the barrel of a gun. So what does this collection of armed groups mean for people living in Ukraine? Complete chaos. For the peasants living in small villages, every new armed group means a completely different regime with a different set of people that they persecute. When the Red Army takes over a village, they attack what they call the Kulaks, or rich peasants. Landlords are killed or driven off, and land is redistributed to the poor peasants. When the White Army takes over, they undo this redistribution and give all the land back to the rich peasants and kill those poor peasants that most supported redistribution. Every armed group abuses the population by demanding food and housing and killing anyone who they thought supported the other guys. After multiple passes by different ideologies taking over a single town, the population could be radically different. In the Bratislav district, the Ukrainians push out a force of Russians, but after a month they can't set up a governing council, because the only remaining people who can read or write are pro-white army. Now, a man named Meinrich Epp, a member of Ukraine's Mennonite community, described the situation as, quote, There were no laws or police. During the day, it was mainly the local Russian nationals from the region, or young men, who visited us repeatedly. Each time, they took something which caught their fancy as their own property. But far more fearful were the nights, when the so-called bandits come, for such visits rarely passed without some life being given as a sacrifice. One particular population that gets the shit end of the stick in this chaos is the Jewish population. Ukraine has a very troubled history with anti-Semitism, and attacks on Jews, called pogroms, happen both on state orders and by happenstance relatively regularly. Both the Red Army and the White Army think that the other side is associated with Jewishness, and use this to justify doing bad things to random people under suspicion of being Jewish, and attacking random Jewish people under suspicion of being enemies. It didn't help that Jewish people tended to have stuff to steal, so after you killed or drove them out, you suddenly had food and supplies, and no one was concerned with protecting the Jewish population. They were hated and blamed for any misfortune by the peasants, the Tsar's troops, the Ukrainian nationalists, the White Army, and any random collection of dickheads with weapons that rolled through town. All told, throughout this raging, chaotic civil war, 50 to 200,000 Jewish people are killed with at least 30,000 of those killed in Ukraine by the Red, White, and Ukrainian nationalist armies. The White Army in particular falls to anti-Semitism to explain why they are hated by the Ukrainian population. They come up with some big old Jewish conspiracy against them, and that must be why they don't have support. In reality, a big part of their problem had to do with the nationalist mindset that was growing in the Ukrainian population. Ukrainians had their own language and culture, but to the white Russians who were reactionary and wanted to go back to the Russian Empire, Ukraine was not a separate place, it was Nova Russia or Little Russia. The Ukrainian language wasn't a different language to be respected, to them it was just a bastardized peasant version of the true Russian language. Being treated like stupid folksy peasants, in addition to the regular mistreatment experienced under every army, 
turned the population against the white army, jeopardizing their power in Ukraine. But rather than think introspectively about why people hated them, the white army fell back on the default position of half these chuckle fucks running around with more guns than brains. If you're unhappy and you know it, blame the Jews. Even though the disastrous Brest-Litovsk Treaty gets hit with an UNO reverse card when Germany signs the Treaty of Versailles, this doesn't really help the situation for Russia. Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania all successfully declare their independence during the Civil War, and the Soviets are essentially powerless to stop them. However, Ukraine is not so easily parted with. If you remember, the Soviets rose to power with a pretty simple promise, bread and peace. Well, from their takeover in 1918 to 1921, while the Civil War rages, they pretty much have none of either. The war with Germany is traded for a far more chaotic civil war, and the devastation of rural areas has caused even more problems with food than there were at the end of the war. Now imagine for a second that you are a person living in the city of Kiev during this chaotic time as the First World War collapses into civil war. First, an independent Ukraine forms with the Central Rada, and then they start acting like they're the government by issuing stamps and printing money and all those other government things. They also declare Ukrainian the national language and replace all the street signs with Ukrainian language signs. Then the Red Army attacks the city, and suddenly everyone associated with Ukrainian nationalism or heard speaking Ukrainian could be shot. The street signs in Ukrainian are torn down and replaced with Russian signs. The Soviets talk a big game about power for the workers, but turns out when they say the workers, somehow that doesn't mean you. Instead, they start deploying groups to implement what they call war communism, which is a fancy way of saying that the government steals everyone's food and ships it back to Russia. This whole war communism business starts because the workers of Russia are hungry, and hungry people are extremely dangerous to an unstable state. It was hungry people protesting that started the fall of the Tsar, and the Bolsheviks' whole sell on why they should be in charge has been bread and peace. Their peace turned out to massively suck, and by 1918 they really weren't doing so hot on the whole bread thing either. With the Germans officially fucked off by Brest-Litovsk, bread becomes the new focus of the Soviets. Lenin began to refer to it like a military matter, which makes sense because military matters were just about the only thing the Bolsheviks were any good at. Sharing, politics, and deal negotiation they were garbage at, but the Red Army was growing into a force to be reckoned with. Mind you, not good enough to fight the Germans. Even after years of war, the Germans had the finest fighting force on the continent, and the Red Army was no match. But with the Germans out of the picture, the Red Army was growing stronger and more effective at putting down the swirling chaos outside of the capital. Since the military was the only thing they were good at, the Soviets put everything in terms of a military campaign, so they opened up what they called the Bread Front. With the German army pulling out of Ukraine to deal with American doughboys landing in the west, the breadbasket of Europe was open to the taking. Now, if you need any proof that nothing ever really changes in Russia, it's interesting to compare this first Soviet invasion of Ukraine to their recent invasion of Crimea and the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Instead of just a straight-up invasion, the Soviets essentially invent the style of asymmetric war the Russians continue to use today. 
First, they seed rebellions among the workers of Ukraine, calling their compatriots to rise up and declare local independence for their area from the Ukrainian government. This sows confusion over whether these are truly independence movements or an invasion. When the Ukrainians fight, rather than nationalism and defense of their country binding them together, it makes the conflict more like a civil war, causing chaos and disruption to the Ukrainian supply lines as if they were the ones fighting in a different country and not the ones defending their home. It's easy to see why a Ukrainian peasant or factory worker might be swayed by the message of the Bolsheviks. The marketing material was not so much focused on the whole dictatorship of the proletariat thing, and instead was focused on the simple pitch of freedom from the rich assholes that control your life. Factory workers were the cream of the crop, according to the Bolsheviks, and seizing control of their factories from their fat cat bosses was a pretty enticing pitch. But the vast majority of the population in both Russia and Ukraine were peasant farmers, making them a critical constituency, even though Lenin and the other Bolshevik leaders were disdainful of the peasants' role in their socialist project. For the peasants, the idea was to first get them engaged in class warfare, like the workers in the city, by telling them to seize the land they worked from their landlords and to kill and rob any wealthy villagers. Unfortunately for the peasants, both rich and poor, the Bolsheviks' goal was not the betterment of the peasants. What they really wanted was the wholesale destruction of the peasants as a class. And this was just a method to sow chaos and confusion to break up peasant solidarity. While encouraging the peasants to murder anyone even moderately successful, Lenin rolled out his plan to feed the city folk that he actually cared about. As early as 1918, Lenin authorized his food commissariat to extract all grain held by peasants, even in excess of quotas. That means groups of fanatical Bolsheviks roaming the countryside with attached Red Guard units, seizing not just a grain tax, but the entire harvest, including the seed grain needed to plant the next year. Grain hoarders were declared enemies of the people, and anyone found with grain could be subject to mandatory 10 years of imprisonment in a Siberian concentration camp, exile, and the complete confiscation of all of your property. There are stories of families caught sharing a meager meal being thrown out into the snow without a jacket or shoes to die of exposure. The unlimited requisition of food and criminalization of grain possession pisses off peasants across the area controlled by the Bolsheviks, and eventually ignites massive peasant rebellions across Russia. Many of these peasant groups are not against the idea of socialism, they just want to be able to grow food without it all being stolen by any passing group of soldiers. This doesn't stop the Bolsheviks from denouncing these rebellions as reactionary elements working against their glorious socialist revolution. This is one of the things that really irks me about the Bolshevik approach. They have no understanding of the forces that they're fighting and how any reasonable person would react to the dogshit policies they are forcing on people. Spoiler alert, if the government rolled up on my house and stole all my food, I'd be pretty pissed. There were actual ideological enemies of their revolution, like the white armies and the European armies supporting them, but these peasant uprisings were a direct result of the Bolsheviks being huge assholes to anyone who wanted to control their own lives or even just survive. The Bolsheviks also have a ton of political problems. Throughout the Civil War, they adjusted to their newfound power. 
Turns out their ideas aren't actually that popular, so the initial vestiges of representative government start getting ripped down almost immediately. In 1918, the Bolsheviks dissolve the Constituent Assembly because they can't get a majority, which really pisses off the other nationalities that are still part of the Russian Empire. It's decisions like this that hasten independence movements from the Soviets in the Baltic states. I would mark this moment as the real transition from something that could be built into a system by the people and for the people into an authoritarian system where rather than the people controlling the means of production, it's just the state and the party controlling all industries and crushing any dissent. As time passes and the Soviets consolidate their power, they start to figure out how to successfully run the Red Army. Their troops expand by conscription from 400,000 in 1918 to 5 million men by 1920. This slowly changes the fighting in Ukraine from partisan chaos to a war with a clear front line, and the Soviets start making gains. Keeping Ukraine is super important, because the grain production of the Ukraine region is the Soviets' only hope of keeping the city's working proletariat that they care most about fed and working. If they can't provide food, they could go the same way as the Tsar, falling to a revolution that starts as a bread riot. As the Soviet Union is coming into their own, I would argue that they also begin to lose touch with the basic concept of what they're building. The whole pitch of the Soviet Union is the Soviet. A Soviet is a council of workers who make decisions that affect themselves. In a given village, you might have a village Soviet where all members are heard and in which they decide how best to plant fields or distribute labor. In a factory, you have a Soviet of workers in the factory and collectively they can decide what are reasonable production goals or how efficiency or safety can be improved. If the Soviets control the means of production, then you have a true government by the people for the people, where at the smallest local level, problems can be addressed by those most familiar with them. Then you have those Soviets send members to regional Soviets, regional Soviets send representatives to a nationwide Soviet, and then finally those groups send representatives to an international Soviet that can make decisions to best support workers everywhere. This would be essentially a democratic socialist system, with power concentrated at the local level, but unified by higher layers of government that bring all these self-governing parts together. Unfortunately, this is really not what the Soviet Union is. The Bolsheviks are not advocates of a true bottom-up approach. Instead, Lenin argues that a small group of leading intellectuals, called, a, called the Politburo, should set the direction of the state from the top based on Marxist principles. Then those orders will be carried out by the lower Soviets. This pitch already sucks way harder than a democratic system, but even this isn't really how it works on the ground. For how the Soviet Union really works, you start with Lenin's idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then just scrap everything past dictator. Lenin's group of enemies starts as just the reactionary Tsar's forces who want to undo his socialist revolution. But soon, this category of enemies starts growing exponentially. Other socialist groups like the Mensheviks are cracked down on for not being socialist enough. Soon, any disagreement within the party is tantamount to treason against the revolution, as the Bolsheviks set in stone that they are the only political force. All of these factory Soviets that run themselves turn out to be a shitshow, because they strike at the drop of a hat when they get the power to make that decision. Yeah, toss that into any fantasy you have of perfect democracy. 
Most of the time, it just means assholes voting did not work and that they should get more stuff. Not that they are striking for no reason. Food is barely getting through to these factory workers, so they strike. Peasant Soviets don't want to give up their food stores to marauding armies, so when they have power, they refuse to send food to the central government. So in response to this, in my opinion, Lenin throws out the baby with the bathwater on this whole socialist experiment. He decides to centralize production, putting power in the hands of central government officials. With this decision, he fundamentally changes his system away from Marxist socialism, with its focus on worker ownership of the means of production, to a form of absolutism, with the state directly controlling industry and crushing all dissent from anyone, including the workers that the USSR pretended it was built for. On the ground, this meant a sharp change for the people of Ukraine. With Red Army control comes war communism. Over the course of the Civil War, all armed groups have been stealing grain wherever they can get it. But this is more of a haphazard and opportunistic process. When the Red Army rolls in, they are receiving frequent orders from Moscow to seize any grain they possibly can to send back to Russia, because the workers are beginning to starve and it is causing unrest. So they push their policy of war communism, and they decide to steal all the grain in Ukraine. Now the thing about growing grain is that in order to grow more, you need time, labor, and seed grain from the last harvest to plant. With Russian soldiers war communizing all of the grain in the entire country and drafting any available men, we have the flour and butter in our recipe for disaster. Now, just imagine for a second what happens in a rural farming society when you take these actions. First off, any food that you grow will just be stolen by soldiers, so why bother growing food? And even if they wanted to, they probably don't have the seed grain or the manpower to grow anything. If you hide grain from the soldiers and they find it, then you'll be labeled as an anti-revolutionary rich piece of garbage and can have all your possessions stolen. You aren't allowed to keep your seed grain or any reserves to survive a bad harvest. So how would you react if you toiled in a field for months to grow grain and then anything you grew was taken by the government and none of it was distributed back to you? On top of that, any farm that looks even moderately successful by having large fields or any animals gets you declared as an evil rich kulak and your neighbors show up with pitchforks and torches to run you out of town. So what do most peasants do? They decide, fuck it, I'm not growing shit then. By the end of the Civil War and established Soviet control of Ukraine in 1921, massive damage had been done to the Ukrainian people. In the Don province, one of the richest in grain and minerals and the same territory that is being fought over by modern-day Ukraine and Russia, the people had suffered massive damage throughout the war. Between the ages of 20 and 29, women outnumbered men 2 to 1 and in some districts 3 to 1. Average acreage sown per household had crashed to one-third of what it was in 1914, and it continued to decrease after the war because of the terrible Bolshevik agricultural policies. Livestock in the region plummeted to one-quarter of the pre-war numbers. All of this meant that when one of the richest grain-producing provinces in the Russian Empire became the poorest. Along with this war communism drive, there was one more major way the Soviets were trying to reshape village life, the communes. These were collective farms, which made a lot of sense ideologically for the Soviets. 
When individuals are farming, then they each need their own tools and they almost definitely won't have any machinery like tractors, and there are tracts of land between individual fields that are not sown. Collectivizing seems like it'll fix these problems and make food production far more efficient. It also can be ideologically useful, because peasants don't really fit into Marxist theory. If you turn these self-sufficient peasants into factory workers whose factory is agriculture, you can indoctrinate them with the same ideas as the city factory workers. This collectivization program is the Soviet leadership's big pitch on how to turn this whole terrible food situation around. It'll be all puppies and sunshine according to their promises. Turns out, collectivization does not go that way. This program is a shitshow from the start, when the Soviets send indoctrinated city party members out to the villages to convince everyone to give up their private forms and join state-run farms. The problem with this pitch is that the peasants don't really get any of the benefits of a collective farm and instead have to deal with a bunch of downsides. More efficient growing per acre doesn't really matter to someone who won't get a portion of the food that's grown, and you're giving up all control over your own life to join a program from a government that has already shown that when the chips are down, they will steal food from the peasants to keep the cities fed. All of these reasonable concerns are dismissed as counter-revolutionary thinking, and anyone advocating this perspective is attacked as an enemy of the state. This doesn't stop widespread resistance to collectivization. Some hold out for as long as possible outside the collective farms under ever-increasing government abuse. Others join the farms but become dissatisfied and try to leave and take the belongings that they contributed. Since everything on the collective farms is state property, everyone treats the tools like the red-headed stepchild of a rented mule, stealing and destroying things at the drop of a hat. Eventually, the Bolsheviks realize that they have bit off more than they can chew by tossing around the embers of civil war like a six-year-old with a Roman candle. Lenin realizes that fighting everyone all the time is not making any progress now that the Bolsheviks have consolidated power. People have poured out of the cities in all of this chaos because the countryside is the only place to find food with so many factories and industries shut down. Massive peasant uprisings have popped up all across Russia, resisting the rampant grain theft that was Lenin's war communism. The countryside is ripped apart by conflicts between the poor peasants and the rich kulaks, and anyone who owned anything could be denounced as rich and robbed blind. The secret police units of the Cheka were completely out of control and had the powers of judge, jury, and executioner and could arrest and shoot anyone they pleased, even for corrupt or pointless reasons. Despite promising bread and peace, the first four years of Lenin's communist utopia had led to nothing but war and starvation. In order to stabilize the country, Lenin announces the New Economic Policy, commonly referred to as the NEP. Lenin refers to this policy as an economic Brest-Litovsk, and just like that treaty, the NEP is a major tactical retreat for his communist economic agenda. The NEP ends the policy of unrestricted grain seizure and instead uses a simple tax of a percentage of the harvest, like how everyone has conducted tax from farmers for all of time. For Ukraine, the NEP is accompanied with a process called Ukrainization, where the Ukrainian Soviet Republic is allowed to make Ukrainian their official language and have a little bit of regional autonomy to throw a bone to the Ukrainian nationalists. 
The NEP legalizes private trade and allows peasants to grow crops and sell them at local markets or in the cities, which gives peasants back their incentives to grow crops. What is so annoying about the NEP is that it fixes a ton of the problems of Bolsheviks' policy in Ukraine, but the Bolsheviks' leaders see it not as a true solution, but as a temporary measure until they are strong enough to enforce their terrible policies. With the Civil War winding down and the Red Army taking over Ukraine, the Soviets looked for a way to undercut the unrest of the Ukrainian people. They looked back at some of the problems and mistakes that they had made in Ukraine, like sending in Russian intellectuals to try to bring them into the Soviet system. Another major mistake was both the White and Red Army treated the Ukrainians like they were Little Russia rather than an ethnically separate place. These nationalist differences were very strong, so to deal with it, Lenin sets up the Ukrainian-Soviet Socialist Republic, and through the combined policies of Ukrainianization and the new economic policy, he both eases the direct control from Moscow of Ukraine and allows them to act in a non-communist way at the ground level. Ukrainianization makes the state language Ukrainian and encourages schools to educate in Ukrainian rather than Russian. The NEP allows peasants to trade and sell wheat as they had done in the past. These policies really are a retreat from the communist ideas of Lenin, but they go a long way towards tamping down rebellion and bringing Ukraine under control. These reforms also bring into the government what was formerly a bloc opposed to the Bolsheviks, the Ukrainian nationalists. This is great in the short term, as it removes a major opposition force to their control of Ukraine. This entrenches the power of the nationalists and puts them in a position to resist and push back on Soviet influence from the local government. Later, under Stalin, these nationalists would be rooted out like a pig hunting for truffles, but instead of making them into fancy chocolates, he mostly makes them into concentration camp laborers in Siberia. These friendly policies last for almost a decade, up until the late 1920s. Thanks to the NEP, the Russian economy gets off the ground in the early 1920s, with factory work in the cities and state-set prices that they would pay for grain from the peasants. Things were finally looking up by 1925 and 6, when there was a large harvest and grain prices paid by the state dropped. Peasants weren't getting much from the cities, which still weren't producing many consumer goods, so when state grain prices were too low, they could easily just decide not to sell and hold on to their stored grain. When these low prices combined with a poor harvest in 1927, the Soviet leadership had to contend with food shortages in the cities. By then, Lenin the idea guy is dead, and Stalin is in charge, and he again begins eyeing Ukraine, the borderlands of his empire that seemed to him to be infected by Western decadence and capitalism, and poorly under his control. The nationalists that he had fought against during the Civil War had been absorbed into the government of socialist Ukraine, and he didn't trust their loyalties. The Bolsheviks had consolidated their power and destroyed every obstacle and enemy in their path, and now they believed they were ready to move another push to collectivize farming that had fallen apart ten years before. This push would create the Holodomor, a genocidal famine among the Ukrainian peasants. But that can be covered on another day, because I've got to chop this off somewhere. So what have we learned from this sad story? Well, Ukraine and Russian history are tied together. Ukraine was a border region for the Russian Empire, and so most Russian people do not see them as a different ethnic group, calling them Nova Russia or Little Russia. 
The Ukrainian language and culture was distinct from Russia, but the Russians considered both their language and culture to be peasanty and associated with country yokels. The First World War and the collapse of the Russian Empire gave Ukraine the short-lived chance to become independent before they were crushed by the German army, the Bolshevik army, and the Russian White Army, all of whom viewed the Ukrainians as a way to get food, but not a people worthy of any independence. The Russian Revolution and subsequent civil war turned Ukraine from a battlefield into an anarchist playground, with complete chaos as governments rose and fell from, and the people on the ground tried to get by without anything protecting them from the next band of men with guns. Our story today ends with Ukraine absorbed back into the USSR, but this is not yet the end of Ukraine as a state. The Bolsheviks did everything they could to murder or drive off Ukrainian nationalists but eventually they gave in and allowed them some regional autonomy and use of the Ukrainian language. These differences made the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic much more palatable to the people, but it marked them as different within the Soviet system, and this difference would lead to their being targeted by the murderous policies of Stalin over the next decade. The end of the war, revolution, and civil war left what had been the breadbasket of Europe devastated. In the Don region, one of the former empire's richest and the site of the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine over Crimea was utterly devastated. The average acreage sowed per household had dropped to one-third of pre-war production. The total livestock in the region had dropped down to just a quarter of what it had been in 1914. Among the population aged 20 to 29, there were two women to every one man, and in some districts as high as three to one. Ukraine had been hollowed out of an entire generation and the majority of its food growing capacity. So there's a sad story for you. It pretty much sucks to be anyone in this story. None of the ideologies or teams made it out without atrocities and colossal fuck-ups. How shittily the Bolsheviks behaved during this time got them labeled as bad news by the United States, and that relationship souring brought us into the fear and competition of the Cold War. If any other group in the swirling chaos of the revolution and civil war had ended up on top, then Russia and the world would have been set on a wildly different path than the world that we now know. But instead, the Bolsheviks won. And they won by controlling enough troops to control a city. Their brutality and violence discouraged working against them, and their promise of a better future allowed them to recruit and solidify support. When other political groups opposed them, they destroyed them to the last man. And when people realized that they didn't like living in the world that the Bolsheviks were building, the Bolsheviks would retreat, regroup, divide their opponents, and then attack again. If there's any lesson from all of this, it's this. Revolutions don't often end with good people in power. They end with whoever is most dedicated to clinging to power, ruling a system very similar to what they set out to destroy. Bam. That's a fucking moral. This might as well be a storybook. <laughs>